The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. If you've ever thought that middle schoolers needed a PR agent, I actually found exactly who we need to talk to. Phyllis Fagel is the PR agent for middle schoolers. Let's keep calm and mother on. Mothering is way too important to do alone and way too serious to be serious all the time. My name is Christy Thomas, and I am here shoulder to shoulder with you, mothering and enjoying life together. This is the podcast where you can focus on being mindful and taking a deep breath with me and learning new things so you can pause and savor the amazing life you already have. Today, we're going to talk about middle school and... I'm sure just hearing that word brought up a lot of feelings because it always does. And our guest today is Phyllis Fagel, and um, she's got two amazing books. The new one just came out, and it's called Middle School Powers. Is that right? Middle School Superpowers, Raising Resilient Tweens in Turbulent Times. Yeah. Okay, Middle School Superpowers, which is like... The opposite of what most people think of when they think of middle school. They think of dread and angst, and they have this internal panic attack, I think. I think that's right. And one of the things I try to do is help people understand that it doesn't have to be the space to dread because we know that kids have a better experience in middle school when they are not catching that anxiety that their parents are feeling it's just a gentler experience if they're not expecting it to be awful. Okay, so let's start with there because this is back to school season here. And so there are a lot of parents feeling all the big emotions, right, with their new middle schoolers. First, what does middle school mean? Because it's not really consistent around the country too. So when I talk about middle school, I'm really talking about the phase and not a specific school structure because you're right. Sometimes it's 5-8. The school that I work at is 5-8. Sometimes it's 6-8. Most of the public schools in our area are 6-8. There's K-8 and then some schools are 7-9. So mm-hmm. what is consistent, and this is what blows my mind is that it's consistent, not just throughout the United States, but throughout the world is that it's this really distinct phase. It's about 10 to 14, 10 to 15, really 15 now because of the pandemic, everybody's skills are a little delayed. Yeah. And it's an age that's just characterized by so much change. We know they're going through puberty, their brains are under construction. They have very little life experience or perspective. Uh, Much of the time they're going from one homeroom teacher to seven teachers and the expectations get harder. And with that comes a lot of anxiety and making it even more fun. That all happens at the same time that number one, you are acutely aware of how well you stack up to others. And number two, you are most looking for people to really see you, know you, feel seen, feel understood, and figure out if you're good enough and if you like who you are. There's a lot. And then you add in the parent angst. I totally cheered up with middle school. And that wasn't something I expected on the parent side of things. Like the transition of middle school felt like a big transition for me as a parent. 
It is, especially on the communication front. I have a friend who's a social worker, and she thought that when her son went to middle school and he had always been really chatty, really connected to her, she thought that when he went to middle school, it would be more of the same. And all of a sudden, he clammed up. She called it his grump grunting face. Every time she asked him a question. <laughs> it's the bro go, oh. phase. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the way she described it is that it, it really hurt. It felt really bad to have him pull away, right? When she also was wrestling with these changes, because parents often lose some of their ties when their kids go to mm-hmm. middle school, they're not as connected to their kids, friends, parents. And so you can feel adrift as a parent. And we don't want to put that onto our kids. We don't want them to have that emotion contagion. And we also want to manage our own anxiety and stay connected. And so one of the hardest challenges is recognizing they still want to talk to you. They still want to be connected. Only you have to do it in a completely different way. Okay. So you have this pulse at middle school. You work at a middle school. How does a parent stay connected in a new way? Do you have any easy ideas? Yeah. So one way is to recognize that even things that seem very impersonal, what did you learn at school today, can feel incredibly invasive and intrusive to a middle schooler. And that's so shocking to me. (laughs) Well, it's a self-conscious phase. And they're not only parsing what you're asking them, they're trying to figure out what your motive is. What is it you're trying to get at? Are you going to tell them they need to do something different than they're doing? Are they, are you going to criticize them? Will they feel judged? Odds are they're going to feel criticized or judged no matter what you do. So they're really studying you to see if you're consistent across (laughs) the words you use, whether there's a pause before you tell them that it's fine that they got the C. They're really hyper- investigating all these relationships. They really are. And so what parents can do is make it less personal. Take a step back, ask questions related to things you've heard on the news or something that your friend told them about their kid or use something from a story that you've heard that's in a gossip magazine. Anything that's not (laughs) them directly can help. That's really helpful. Um, I wish I would have learned that my oldest is turning 17 and I could have used that advice like, you know, six years ago. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I've had three kids go through middle school. My last one just finished and I really get it. And one of the quotes in my book, my, my then sixth grader, he came home and he also had been much chattier in elementary school. And he came home and I said, what did you do at school today? And he said, I don't know. I had PE. And I said, well, what did you do at PE? And he said, I ran. And I said, can you expand on that? And he said, around the track. (laughs) So I would also add having a sense of humor, taking what you can get, working with what that phase is and what you're seeing in front of you, trying to find times to talk when they want to, which is often late at night when you're tired and want to go to bed. Yeah, that's when their energy tends to be up because they've had a chance to recover from the school day too. I really found that I needed to like, we needed a buffer time in the afternoon. If I was going to be home when the bus came, I needed snacks ready and I needed to know like not to talk to them for at least a half an hour. Yes, and that is not a personal affront to the parent in any way. It really is them recharging and just trying to get themselves to a place where they can handle yet another social interaction. I think parents tend to forget what it's like to be a middle schooler. And we once did a shadow a student exercise where we followed a kid all day long. Mm -hmm. I was ready to collapse by the end of the day. They have hundreds of interactions with peers, with teachers, times where they have to know an answer, times where they have to perform. And they're doing all of this at such an insecure, vulnerable time in development. And that's exhausting. That's really important to remember because yeah, middle school isn't the same at all 
is when we went through it. Nope, not even remotely. So let's talk about the other part that's completely different for most of us is that belonging piece of connection. It doesn't just happen in person in school anymore. It's happening online, too, and over texting and social media. How do we help our middle schoolers? And some of them are just getting their phone, right? A lot of us are waiting in middle school is that age where we give them the phone. Yes. And I do want to say that not every kid is capable of handling the phone in with the same finesse yeah. as every other kid. <laughs> and so we really want to be looking at our kid as an individual and assessing the readiness and looking at how it's affecting them and asking them questions that get them critically. If you lecture a middle schooler, you're not going to get very far. So one thing I like to ask kids is to really take note of how they feel before and after they're online. Okay. And once they've reflected to think about what app they were using, which friends they were interacting with so that they can get a sense of what is working for them and what isn't working for them. Because we tend to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Oh, totally. Say, You're not ready <laughs> for any of this. And and sometimes they might be actually benefiting from watching funny animal videos, let's say on YouTube, but they feel really lousy when they're on Instagram looking at photos of everybody hanging out without them. Right. Do you um model that at all in your own social media use? Do you talk about how social media or just different apps affect you? I absolutely do. And one of the exercises that I talk about in middle school superpowers that I think is really powerful to do with a kid is to sit down next to them and you go through your feed, whatever it is you use, whether it's Twitter, whether it's just texts, whether it's your Facebook feed. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, they go through whatever their most used app is. And what you're both tasked with doing is finding the post that stands out as aberrant in some way. Okay. Maybe you feel like you exposed yourself by sharing too much, or maybe you said something that was kind of a lie because you wanted to impress somebody, or maybe you ended up spending seven hours (laughs) on some app And you can see that you got way, way deep into a topic when there was 10,000 other things you needed to do. Yep. And then once you've found that post or that text and they've done the same, ask them to think about what the conditions were at the time. Were they lonely? Were they bored? Were they angry? Were they jealous? Yeah. And be just as transparent about your own feelings. And the reason to do that is number one, you're not lecturing. You're learning about them. They're learning about you. And number two, that can set them up for success down the road. They're less likely to make a mistake. So if they can say, you know what, I sent that text at 11 p.m., maybe that will help them see that it's not that wise to have that technology in their bedroom late at night. Yep. That's a good reminder because, yeah, I I find that the conversations go better if I can say I messed up here, too. Absolutely. So what I find after my kids are on social media and what other parents are scared of, right, is the vulnerability of what comes up and the exposure to hard topics and how to have conversations around these topics that you're not expecting from a 10-year-old to 14-year-old. Yes, 100%. And I think one of the things that parents need to know when you have a kid in this age range is that when they see something and they think they shouldn't have seen it, whether it's something really violent or an upsetting event in the news or porn or anything that they think might get a rise out of their parents or be met with even worse, a consequence like taking their phone away, they're not going to bring it up. And so you want to start from the stance of assuming they're seeing all of it. And I can tell you, they are seeing all of it. That's so hard. (laughs) All of it. It's so hard. And, you know, I do want to tell parents that you don't have to be, you know, 
totally adept at having all of these hard conversations yourself. If there's a topic that's really just not yet something you're comfortable talking about, you can designate another adult to have that conversation. Or if something's a trigger for you and you think it's not going to bring out the best in you or help your relationship, to really think about other ways for them to get that information. And in the case of something like sexuality, yep. it might be the other way around. They may not be comfortable having right. that conversation with you. In that case, you want to make sure you're at least giving them access to age-appropriate developmentally appropriate, yep. factual, lining your bookshelf with the type of books you want them to open. Absolutely. That's really good to know. But in middle school, there's also like a wide range of like people starting to talk about self-harm and eating disorders. And then on the flip side, there's also racism and sexism. How do you, if it's not your kid that's having the hard time and they hear that another friend is, how do you help your kid make sure that they know you're safe and that they do need to tell someone. So I have a whole chapter that I'm calling the superpower is super force field. And it's about setting boundaries because these kids, their whole lives are always told that the most important thing is to be kind, to be giving. Mm -hmm. And it is not intuitive for them to understand that if there's a big problem, that it's okay, maybe even better for them to take a step back because they might actually get in the way of that child getting the kind of specialized support that they need. And so what we want to make sure we're doing is talking to our kids about the kinds of topics that are appropriate for a seventh or eighth grader. Yeah. And that we're talking about what they can do when their friend steps over that line and, and shares something more problematic. They're talking in the book about things like if somebody shares that a parent is abusive yep. or they're cutting themselves or they're suicidal. Those are all situations where our child can't manage that particular problem. They're all struggling themselves. It's yeah. a tough phase and it's a tough time to grow up. They don't have the bandwidth and they don't have the expertise. So we want to be giving them the language to share with their friends. And it might be something like, that sounds really, really hard. Are you talking to somebody about that? Do you want me to help you talk to somebody about that? I always tell kids you can have a conversation with an adult you trust to strategize how you might yeah. have a conversation with the kid. But we have to proactively tell these kids that you can be giving, you can be kind, and you can go to sleep because whatever that issue is, is going on for so long that it's draining you and you're tired. I love that, that framework that you're like laying it explicitly out because I've walked some friends through some hard situations that their kids have learned about that like wasn't impacting their own child, but their kid was the nice kid. And so they heard all about this really hard thing. And yes, I, I think it's Michelle Borbai, my quote in the book, who says that, you know, a nice kid can get pulverized uh -huh. because all they want to do is be a good, kind person and they're a good listener. And it's really hard for them to take a step back. And this comes up also in much more benign situations. I have a student who had one friend who would come to sleep over. Yeah. And the second she walked in the door, the kid would say, can I sleep over next weekend? And yeah. It was someone, right? It was someone she liked. It wasn't that she didn't want her to sleep over, but it was suffocating. And she didn't want her to sleep over every single weekend. And she really had to work with me and rehearse coming up with a phrase that A, she felt comfortable with and B, delivered the message mm -hmm. really in a straightforward way. And eventually what she said was, you know, I love it when you sleep over, but I also want to make sure I have time to hang out with other people. 
I cannot tell you how many times we had to talk about that. That was a really, really hard conversation for her to have. And kids in this age group need so much coaching and support around those kinds of conversations. Do you have any resources? Maybe this is off topic, but I think sometimes the reason why my kids have a hard time with those conversations is that I maybe haven't done enough boundary talking around them for them to hear me say no in situations that they can read my face and know that I don't want to say yes, but I'm saying yes anyways for some reason. In term, so you're asking, like, how can parents model this? Yeah, how do you model bond, like boundaries or how do you have these conversations? Because it also means listening to your kids tell you no, too. Yeah, so the way you can model that for your kids is first by explaining what boundaries are. Okay. And I think a lot of adults don't know what boundaries are. Boundaries are something that you control. You, your boundary isn't that that friend isn't going to ask you to sleep over. Right. You have no control over that. Your, the boundary you're setting is that if somebody asks you to sleep over the second they walk in the door, you're going to let them know that you need to make sure you have time for all, to hang out with other friends as well. And so the best way to model that is by doing the same thing with yep. your own relationships, your own work relationships. You might say something like, you know what? My, boss has asked me to come in and cover for my colleague. And this is the fourth time they've asked me. And I know they're asking me because I'm always accommodating and it's less stressful than asking this other colleague who is bristles at those kinds of requests, but it's really unfair for it always to be me. So here's what I'm going to say. Yep. And then model it, uh, cope out loud and let me hear you say it. That's good to know because yeah, I think that we need to practice those things. All of this, all the time in middle school is about practicing, I think, all the things that we wish we would have known as middle schoolers. And I think that's why I wrote this book for adults and why I wrote my last book for adults, because I, I'm the same generation and I didn't grow up learning these skills myself. Right. So I'm really learning many times alongside my own kids, alongside my students. Yep. And what a great gift to be able to teach that not only to our children, but a gift to ourselves mm-hmm. to figure out for the rest of our lives, how to handle some of these difficult situations. So what are the best parts of middle schoolers? Because middle schoolers often, like we we talked about that initial angst that everyone feels when we were like, ah, you're writing about middle school. You're talking about middle school. Let me tell you my worst things. But there are some really great things that happen in middle school too. So let's Talk about the positive PR for this age group. Yes. And going back to the idea of the conversations, by the way, one of the things parents can do is really mine their kids' school social media feeds and look for any kind of conversation starter related to information that's shared. It might be an email home, awesome, something going on at school. Um, But one of the things I really love about the kids themselves and love about the face is that I don't think there are anybody, there's any human on the planet that's funnier in a middle (laughs) school. There's no one else on the planet that has greater conviction that they can change the world with merely a well-worded petition, Yep. you know, to get chocolate milk Thursdays at school. (laughs) It is a middle schooler who not only is going to think they can make it happen, but probably is. They are so idealistic. They're so purpose-driven. They're insecure, but they're also really impressionable, which means that I call it the last best chance. It's a really great opportunity for parents to get in there and impart their values, turn out good people in this age group. Uh, they can be 13 going on three or 13 going on 30, depending yeah. on the day, which makes it really fun. And they really need you. And I think there's something very rewarding about just getting in there and experimenting and iterating and figuring out how you can support these really, really complicated but also really earnest kids. Yeah, this is the phase where you get to do it as like you model something, you do it together, and then you get to see them flourish. 
where they do it themselves. Yes. Yes. The, the, um, I do, we do, you do yes. for everything. <laughs> and that's really what we want to do. We want them to, uh, to acquire the skills and then have the confidence that comes from having that competence that they can master these things, whether it's emailing a teacher, whether it's inviting someone over. I think adults tend to under, uh, underestimate how hard it is for a kid to take even a small social risk. And so coming at them from that stance of really understanding and empathizing with them when yeah. they're taking on these tasks rather than dismissing them or saying something like, it's not that big of a deal. Why don't you just call them? <laughs> well, it is a big deal. There's like 25 steps before just calling them. For middle schooler. That's so important to remember. Yeah. All those steps that we find so intuitive or we just naturally do are each big steps on their own. Well, if you think about something like shyness, yeah. if anybody is listening who remembers being a really shy kid, they're probably a lot less shy now because shyness is a phobia. And the way that you extinguish a phobia is through small exposures. So a lot of these things that seem easy to us now is because we had no choice but to expose ourselves to them over the last gazillion yeah. years. Our kids are now just starting that process and learning how to do it themselves. That is the reminder I think everyone needed. And in middle school, it's not the goal to be friends with everyone, right? We want our kids to have how many friends? When should we be worried about our kids and friendship? So one of the things that is really helpful to do when it comes to your kid is to separate out what you think Yep. Is- <laughs> The right amount or number, which doesn't exist, by the way, there's no such thing as right number of friends, and really look at your kid's temperament. One of the things that came up during the pandemic is that, especially when everybody was isolated, the parents would say things like, how come you're not calling so-and-so or Zooming with so-and-so or these other friends of yours are meeting out in the neighborhood? Why don't you go out and meet them? And what I was hearing in my private practice from kids is that while they did want to socialize with friends, they were actually doing just fine talking to their siblings, yeah. talking to their parents, maybe occasionally seeing a friend. And the anxiety didn't come from loneliness. The anxiety came from feeling like they were disappointing their parents. Oh, And so we don't want to create anxiety where there is none. So if you have a kid who's really happy and doesn't feel lonely and they have two solid friends, great. If you have a kid who has no social skills and they're too much for any one target friend, rather than trying to have them hang out over and over again with that one nice friend, they might be better off having lots of brief structured play dates or hangouts with a wide variety of kids. So they're not overburdening any one kid, but they're still getting that opportunity to practice social skills. Okay. So let's unpack that one more time though. So how do, how do a parents take a step back and not put their anxiety on their middle schoolers? Cause that's basically the premise of both your book. Yes. So, you know, I think a, a really powerful question is to stop and ask yourself, whose anxiety is this? Okay. Is this an old anxiety, something that you're bringing to the table from your own childhood? Is this something that your child is complaining to you about and want support? And even by the way, if they complain to you that they're lonely, you still need to unpack it because a kid might feel lonely when they come home. They might be ruminating about something that, that happened last period. It might be a kid who is totally comfortable at school, but lonely when they're on their travel soccer team because they gotcha. don't have much in common with kids who all go to another school. Yeah. Or they might feel lonely when they walk into a cafeteria and aren't sure where to sit. And once we know what is causing that loneliness or that sense of isolation, then we can actually problem solve with them. So for example, with the travel soccer team, maybe they finish the season, but if they're going to play again, they either join a team with friends or they recruit a friend to go play with them on that team. So we want to be 
helping them stay engaged, helping them stick with things that they want to do, but finding ways for them to feel more supported as they're doing it. And it sounds like it's really important to keep asking questions and to not just overreact when you hear your kids say things. Like we're all so concerned about teen mental health, especially middle school mental health. And so when a kid says something, they're they're lonely or they're sad, it's important not to jump jump too high. Yeah. And I'll say two things about that. The first is I think we're very quick to go straight to mental health yeah. as the underlying right. cause. I mean, when, when you open up the newspaper, that's what you're reading as a parent nowadays. Yes. And sure, they might be anxious. They might be sad. But very, very often what I see with this age group is that there's an underlying skill deficit, skills deficit that's interfering with their ability to connect with peers or they feel overwhelmed and anxious at school because they have an executive functioning skills deficit. I mean, they all have an executive functioning <laughs> skills deficit, but something more. Yeah. Yeah. We can target those, that's those skills to actually alleviate some of that anxiety or sadness that they're feeling or entering a conversation is another yeah. type of skill that kids might need support with. That makes total sense. Well, what do you want everyone to know about middle schoolers? If you could give one last piece of advice. Oh my gosh. That's, I know. Such so open-ended. Question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I would say that the best way to raise an emotionally healthy middle schooler is to have a very, very firm grasp and understanding of this distinct phase. Okay. To understand that they are looking to you to see if they are good enough, to see if you accept them as they are, to see if you can stay calm. You know, that poker face that's so hard yep. uh, to see if they are allowed to make mistakes and you give them a runway back rather than getting them so stuck in shame that they can't learn from the experience. Mm-hmm. So really, truly honor- honoring who they are, allowing them to make mistakes, telling them at the outset that you expect mistakes, recognizing that it's a time with so much churn socially, emotionally, physically, yeah. that they are looking for reassurance from all of the adults in their lives. And I appreciate that because I think when we see these middle schoolers, we um, we forget how much they don't know because their bodies look so different so quickly. Yes. And going back to this idea that they have a bad reputation, an undeservedly bad reputation <laughs> yeah. of being mean and drama seeking. Yeah. They're not mean. They're actually very big hearted. What they are is socially clumsy. And they have a really hard time. I have a one superpower super sight, which is about teaching kids to anticipate how their behaviors might, what the fallout might be from those behaviors. They really don't think ahead. No, they're super impulsive. no, they're in the moment. They're fully in the moment. <laughs> Completely. So they need a framework and they need a lot of help finding ways to get out of their own way that all that interference, that emotional interference that can get in the way. So they, they, they're not, they're, there's nothing wrong with your child's character if they're making these kinds of mistakes. Yeah. They're just learning and need a lot of coaching. That's fantastic. And we can let them rest in our love and be safe and they can, we can remind them all the time, right? That they, middle school is just middle school. (laughs) Yes. And all of these, you know, things that they might be seeing as perceived weaknesses or flaws, really just normalizing for them that everybody is insecure about something. Even the kid who looks like they have it all together doesn't have it all together. Yeah. The kid who's the perfect straight A student, they're probably sacrificing something else like time with friends. Yeah. Nobody has it all together. Nobody is perfect. Everybody is struggling in this age group. And that's part of the process. Thank you. Well, how are you taking care of yourself? Every episode here of Keep Calm and Mother On involves a self-care conversation for, for the mom. So how do you take care of yourself? 
You know, I think my favorite self-care strategy in the summer, I do a lot of kayaking. I like to get outside and just decompress and go far away. I, my kids joke that mom goes out to sea, like <laughs> to go away from people. I'm definitely an introvert by in terms of my temperament. But the advice that I really try to follow, especially when I can't go out to sea, yeah. is to find somebody who I have a meaningful, caring relationship with, who I can connect with in a substantive way at least once a week. That's awesome. I like that. So what about your family? So when you're, when you're back from sea, how do you have fun as a family? Because that's the other piece, right? Is we want to keep connected and keep anchored together. So I can't take credit for this idea, but I also can't remember who shared it with me, but it's something that I love. And what you do is you come up with four things and you write them on four pieces of paper or four post-it notes that you like to do and that you think your child might like to do with you. Okay. Meanwhile, you have your child do the same thing. They write down four things they like to do that they think you might like to do with them. Okay. And then you put them all in a hat and you can have everyone in the family do this. And then when you want to do something as a family, you pull one out and you try it. So sometimes it will be your idea. Sometimes it will be your kid's idea and you're mixing it up and nobody is being too domineering or running the show. Everyone gets a chance. And you're also finding ways to share what you love with your kids and for them to share what they love with you. I love that. And I love that. Yeah. They're the the loudest voice isn't always being picked with that solution. Exactly. Excellent. Well, where should people find you? What I know you've got your amazing books. So remind us what they're called. So my first book is middle school matters. And that's about the 10 key skills middle schoolers need to thrive you know, in middle school and beyond. Yeah. And I call that, that one is like my what to expect when you're expecting a middle school. <laughs> yeah, I definitely, I have, so my youngest is about to enter fifth grade here and it was like a good refresher of like, oh yeah, here's what's coming up. <laughs> <laughs> and the new one is middle school superpowers, raising resilient tweens in turbulent times. And I wrote that one almost as a sequel of sorts, because what we have seen in the last five years is that the world has really changed mm-hmm. and the kids have changed too. Their needs have changed. And so if middle school matters is kind of that 30,000 foot view, middle school superpowers gets into the weeds. It's really about the humanity of the kid. How do you raise a kid who can connect socially? How do you raise a kid who can bounce back from anything, who can cope with disappointment, who can see setbacks as stepping stones and really grow and learn from those experiences without getting dogged down by negativity Yeah, and turning out these optimistic kids? That's fantastic because we need, as parents, I think parenting is based on the idea initially of radical optimism, right? Like we have these babies because we're radically optimistic and then, and then we have to hold on to that with them. Yes. And we have to constantly retool our expectations and recognize that who they are at eight is not who they are at 11, is not who they are at 14 or 17. Uh, you know, you see glimpses of that little kid yeah. all along the way. I said, my oldest is now just turned 22. I also have a 20 year old. And then my youngest is the one who's now in high school. Okay. But I look at them and I see that journey and how much they've changed over time. And if you can almost look at it as a third party observer, as yeah. opposed to bringing all of those expectations to the table, it's like watching a great movie. It's very dramatic and exciting. <laughs> it has its ups and downs and it has its moments where you definitely need to call that friend or that lifeline and have that conversation. But as long as you don't bring all of that, as long as you don't impose your own expectations on them, it's really joyful and fun. 
I um, I personally needed that as we're about to enter junior year here with my oldest. So thank you. Oh <laughs> sure. <laughs> and where should year. people? Do you have a website? Uh, Instagram. I do. I have both. I have, I have, I was going to say Twitter, but I don't even know what, what is it? X? I, I think it's X at this moment. Yeah. <laughs> so my handle on both, on, on all, all of the social media tends to be at Pete Fagel, okay. um, Phyllis Fagel on Facebook. And then my website is phyllisfagel.com. Excellent. And those will That's all be in the show notes. Okay, great. And yeah, my email is on my website if anyone wants to reach out. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I just want to say thank you for doing what you're doing with your school and the kids that you work with, but also that you've always been exactly the right mom for your kids. And thanks for sharing what you know with all of us. That's lovely to hear. Thank you. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Absolutely. I hope that this conversation was so reassuring for you, wherever your kids are in terms of their age. Phyllis, was such a delight to talk to you. And I just want to tell you the superpowers that her book talks about. Super flexibility, super belonging, super sight, super vulnerability, super bounce, super agency, super force field, super security, super healing, super balance, super daring, and super optimism. And as you know, from last week, I talked about how on August 21st and the third Mondays of the month, I'm going to do a lunch and learn. And this is definitely going to be one of the books that I bring up when we're talking about how we can read great parenting books, great, amazing books, and then also apply them in real life. So look forward to hearing more about both of her books. You have always been exactly the right mom for your kids. I am so glad you are here on earth. Remember, motherhood is too serious to be serious all the time. So take care of yourself and have fun with your family. Have a great day. Please text this to at least two moms that you know that have a middle schooler. Bye, everyone.